Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is John Porch. I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute and I hope you're all staying healthy and enjoying the summer of sports. For today's episode, the focus is leadership and culture, which has been an area of considerable focus at the Leaders Performance Institute over the last three months across our communities of practice, leaders' virtual roundtables, our written content. It was also the centrepiece of our virtual leaders meet, the Evolution of Leadership Summit, which took place in June. I'm sure some of you logged on to that. But before I continue, I wanted to give a shout out to our main partners, Kaiser, who make these podcasts possible. Kaiser, as many of you will know, have been changing the world of fitness for over 40 years, and we're proud to have partnered with them for more than a decade ourselves. More than 80% of the top sports teams in the world now train with Kaiser exercise equipment. If you would like to talk to them, please get in touch with a member of the leaders team, who will be delighted to introduce you to the right person at Kaiser. Alternatively, head to kaiser.com to find out more. Back to today's episode, where we bring you two esteemed leaders from the world of British high performance. The first is Dean Smith, the manager of English Premier League club Aston Villa, and then Paula Dunn, the head coach of the Paralympics team at British Athletics. Sandwiched between those two is my interview with performance psychologist Michael Caulfield, who I wanted to grab for a quick chat because it was he who hosted our virtual leaders meet back in June. At the time, Michael shared a virtual stage with Dean, who was the first speaker on day one, and it was he who posed the questions to Dean that you'll hear in this excerpt in just a moment. The session was titled Premier League Leadership, Giving Feedback and Influencing People. For those of you unfamiliar with English football, Dean Smith took the reins at Aston Villa, his boyhood club in fact, in 2018 when they were languishing 14th in the English Championship. Seven successful months later, they were promoted to the Premier League via the playoffs and, having survived their first season back in the English top tier, they consolidated their position last term and looked well placed to build on their solid platform for the season ahead. Dean himself has had an inspirational coaching journey too. Firstly, following his retirement from playing in 2004, he took a coaching role at Leighton Orient under Martin Ling. He was there for five years before taking his first senior coaching role at Warsaw in 2009, and then moving to Brentford in 2015, where he stayed until Villa came calling. With each new post, he has taken on greater challenges, and it will be curious to see Dean when he returns to Brentford with his Villa side during the 2021-2022 season, now that the Bees have been promoted to the Premier League for the first time. Anyway, the excerpt focuses on Dean's development as a coach. In the first response you hear, Dean is answering Michael's question about the ways he has developed as a leader as he has transitioned from club to club. I think through all the experiences that I've had have led up to, to getting this job. If I'd have had this job as my first job, then I wouldn't have lasted two and a half years. I'd have been probably um, looking for another job after six months because it is a very big company, a global football team that the owners will, will make sure grows bigger and bigger. So my first experience into coaching was with Martin Ling as an assistant. And I had less con- emotional control then than I certainly did when I became manager at Warsaw just over 10 years ago. And through all them experiences, I've learned how to how to deal with a chairman at Warsaw who was a local businessman, not a a multi-millionaire, but a millionaire understood how to look after his money because it was his money that was driving the football club. And then I've gone to Brentford, which was another step up for me and dealing with probably a, a multi-millionaire in, in the owner there and two directors of football who were very different as well. All them experiences of working with them and dealing with them and managing upwards, sideways, downwards, 
has helped me get this role at Aston Villa. And the first question I asked when I got interviewed to both the owners and the CEO was, why me? Why are you choosing me? Because I need to know why they want me at the football club. And it works. They they wanted me because they knew I was local. They knew what the football club meant. And they knew how hard it was to get it back to its former glories. And But they also knew how hard I would work to to try and get that because of my emotional contact I have with the club as well. In your time as a coach team from Orient to Walsall to Brentford and now at Villa, I suspect you started off doing bibs and cones in every training session and organising the food on the, on, on the bus on the way back from a long away trip. Now that you're at such a large organisation, what do you know how to do less of and what do you have to do more of to help develop Aston Villa as, a, as this global football brand? I probably have to deal less with agents, which I'm thankful for. My sporting directors deal with that and I get more time with my players, which is the most important thing. Because I've always seen my role as, as making players better. If I make them better, then we become a better team. Become a better team, you get better results and you stay in the job longer and you become a successful football team. You know, And that's what I've always believed in. So I, I get more time now with my players, which I'm thankful for. Being a large organisation, then I've got more staff, more people I can, I can work with. So we can actually get a lot more individual coaching into players. I worked with a set-piece coach, obviously, at Brentford, and we're, we're doing so here now. Uh, we've got analysts galore and who are working into work, working with the players all the time, showing them their own clips. And one of the best things about our owners, they wanted to grow the club again. So our training ground, Bodymore Heath, has, has just been updated incredibly well. We've got a new high-performance centre. We're now getting some sleep pods in, players' lounges, Single rooms for, for debriefs, big rooms, big theatres for analysis of games as well. So, you know, where uh, it enables me now to, you know, say to my coaches, go and take players in the rooms, go and speak to them about the game and help them. And you're managing more people around you, but don't forget that it's on the grass where the players want to see you. They need to see the manager out there. They need to see that you're looking because you're the one they want to impress. You're the one who picks the team and they want, they want to get into your team. Through COVID, what were the main challenges you faced as a head coach? And also, what were the opportunities too that you could work with players more through COVID? The challenge straight away was we had two months of lockdown where we didn't know how the players were physically, mentally. You know, we set up a lot of virtual meetings uh, on Zoom and, and stuff. And I learned a lot from that. And But you never had that social contact still that I crave because you do get a feel for people as well. It's all very well, you know, people saying on a, a video, yes, I feel fine, I'm good. But, you know, until you're actually with them, you actually get a feel whether they are actually fine and whether it's just words. So I really miss that social contact with the, with the players. But some of the things that gave us opportunities was we had smaller groups on some of our video chats. So I, I ended up listening to a number of players that I probably would never have listened to in meetings before because... You know, they get drowned out by the, the more vociferous of the group. And as you know, we have, we have to remember that within a group, a squad of 26 players, they're all going to be different. And you're going to be some who are on the scale of being more extrovert and some who are more, more introverted. You know, your job is to make sure you're listening to all of them and, and getting an idea of, of where they're coming from. So the small group meetings great, gave me a great opportunity to listen to them voices and, and probably highlighted the need, helped me learn that, I probably haven't listened to all of them before because, uh, you know, I haven't had them small group chats before. Um, and now now I do that 
and we have a lot more smaller group meetings. And another thing, when we first actually came out of lockdown, our training was restricted to groups of four. You know, we'd be on the training ground as coaches from nine till five in the afternoon. And with my skin, I had to have plenty of factor 50 on, that's for sure. But I actually enjoyed being out on the grass for that long again and uh, actually working with the smaller details of the player's game. And I probably learned that as well. I, one of our owners, he's also uh, one of the owners of uh, the NBA team, Milwaukee Bucks. And I, I managed very early in my Aston Villa career to go over there and, and watch them train. And they've done a lot of individual training. And um, I asked the coach why, and he said, he called it their daily vits, the daily vitamins or vitamins. And something I've actually brought back to Aston Villa and something we do two or three times a week now, only 20, 25 minutes, but the players we can get some really good detail into them about their own individual aspects of their game. You mentioned there your own at the Milwaukee Bucks. If I can just jump ahead for a moment, Dean. What influence has have the American owners had on you and American sport almost has had on you? Because we can get very villagey here in the UK and think we do everything brilliantly. What key lessons have you learned from, uh, from American sport and from your owners also? I think you learn an awful lot from them all the time. Yeah. You know, uh, the regular board meetings that, that we have, the questions that they ask. You know, I think I think the Ameri- the, the States, in, in ter- certainly in sports, for recruitment especially, but in, in terms of their games, American football and baseball, they're so far ahead of us in terms of analytics. You know, they have numbers on, on things that we probably don't. But I do also believe it's not always about, you know, them numbers. There's got to be a balance of, of having that feel as well um, about people. You know, we're, in terms of our recruiting, how we recruit now, um, you know, we, we use an, all, an awful lot of analytics to, to get the data around the players that we want. We, we look at the players that we want and the positions that we want. We profile them and then we use the analytics to dwindle them down to the, the top five and, and have a look. at But then them top five, there's not going to be very much between them. And what the beauty is then is, is my job is to, to find out that who's going to fit best in our, in our environment, in, in our dressing room, who I believe I can teach the best and get the best out of. And along with the players, you have to manage and lead your coaching staff, Dean. And I've always said, and we've said this many a time in one of our many interesting days, I hope, at Brentford, that in addition to results, players can get bored of a manager because it's the same messages, maybe the same person, the same tone. So can I ask you now, as you've developed, how important are all of your staff in adding different voices? And more importantly, Dean, how do you let them have a voice and a view to challenge you? I think it's very important. You know, you have to be challenged within this job. I, I don't want people who... Uh, they're going to say yes to me all the time because then I'm not going to get any better. I'm not thinking about the decisions I'm making. I'm just actually making the decision and then it's being carried out. So it's very important that the, the people around you, first and foremost, that uh, you trust them. You know, it's that tight-knit group. You know, I'm very fortunate. I've got Craig Shakespeare, who's won the Premier League with, with Leicester City. and also manage them. I've got John Terry, one of the most decorated captains in Premier League history. Richard O'Kelly who has been my trusted ally and sidekick for nearly seven years. So you've sat in that dressing room with me. They don't agree with me, you know, and we, we have a good old debate. But there has to be one decision maker at the end of it. And I'm always asking, you know, uh, the people around me to give me their opinions. I want their opinions so I can actually make, a, you know, a, a better decision. We're trying to teach players to become good decision makers on the pitch. But the most important thing for me is my decision making and, and how I make them. So... I try to be as inclusive as I can with, with my staff and make them feel valued. I think that's the most important part of any workplace. 
people who come to work, they want to feel valued. They want to feel that, you know, they're pushing themselves, they're getting pushed by others um, and they're improving. And, you know, that's an environment that I really want. So if I've got two assistant coaches or three assistant coaches, then let them coach, you know, because that's what they're good at. You know, it's very easy to, to want to do all the coaching. And I love coaching, but I know there's a time and place and I have to let them go and plan sessions at times and, and go and take sessions. And I stand back and watch. And the most successful manager of them all in the Premier League history has been Sir Alex Ferguson. And one of the big things that he spoke about a lot was standing back, having a more holistic view and, and watching, just watching and listening in the environment you're in. And there's so much you can actually pick up on when you're doing that. But as I say, it's important that you're outside because the players need to see you. And, you know, when you're doing them in coaching sessions, 48, 24 hours before the game, that's when I start being more active as well. Thank you to Dean Smith once again. And if you're a Leaders Performance Institute member, then please go and check out the full session at leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. A short while after that session, I caught up with Michael Caulfield, who, as he said, worked with Dean at Brentford. Michael hosted both days of Virtual Leaders Meet the Evolution of Leadership and was uniquely placed to discuss how it has influenced his thinking on the topic of leadership and culture. I asked him about that and I also asked him to reflect on Dean Smith as a leader. And England fans be warned. This interview was recorded mid-Euro 2020, before the final and that fateful encounter with Italy. But Michael does talk about the power of storytelling in the context of Gareth Southgate's team and that of Denmark, who reached the semi-finals and played England without their captain Christian Eriksen, who is still recovering from a cardiac arrest suffered in Denmark's first match in that tournament. But first of all, I asked Michael for his impressions of the event and how they might have changed in the days and weeks since. The key thing still is that it gives us all the chance to talk, listen, connect and do all the things which we need to do which have not changed over centuries despite the the advancements of, of science, technology, communication, data and even pandemics but above all else human beings need to connect and share and that's what the virtual meetings have allowed us to do. Well this latest meet was Virtual Leaders Meet the Evolution of Leadership. Michael what were some of the key themes that stood out for you? What resonated most? As you speak to me, I've still I've still got my, my my notes here, and it was extraordinary just how much that the I would still say now the art of storytelling, and I know that we've we've touched that before with leaders, but although we live in a very data driven era, that the power of relationships and the power of connection and stories and belonging to certain groups and belonging to certain countries and belonging to certain teams, every single time I come to any virtual event with you. That's nearly always the same takeaway, that although we live in this extraordinary era of information, it still comes down to the very human aspect of of storytelling and connection every single time. And this was no different, John. Well, on behalf of the team here at Leaders, I'm delighted to hear that. And I will pass on your kind words. But you mentioned storytelling there. How do the best leaders use the art and the power of storytelling to their advantage? I think that if we're just spoken to and just given information, we can end up being just drunk on information completely and utterly drunk on information. So if you look at our discussions we had with our friends in New Zealand and Australia from, from, the, from the All Blacks and from AFL, they were speaking about the power of the team they belong to and the power of the town or the power of the club or the power of the country in the All Blacks case, which is still probably the best, the best example of them all with that. And that was, I think, Scott O'Neill talking about that uh, from an American point of view. 
So we're still pretty tribal. We're still pretty simple. We like to belong to a, a group, a club, a family, a tribe, which unites us all. And every time, as I say, I come away from leaders, that sense of storytelling and how vulnerable we are, but how much support we need is hammered home every single time. Perhaps that speaks to a sense of fulfilment that goes beyond mere winning and losing, or even victories, trophies and medals. I think it also speaks to the motivation that an athlete needs to get up and go to training at five o'clock in the morning, right? It does. And as we record this, John, we're, we're approaching the end of the, uh, of the Euros in football. And we look at the power of what England are due to play Denmark in a couple of months' time. But look at the art of the, the connection between those two countries, what they've been through. England, we've all been through the pandemic. Let's forget about that for a moment. But the Danish team, uh, their, their greatest player, possibly Christian Eriksen, was very close to dying on the pitch. And he was saved by the, the swiftness of the, of the medics and the paramedics and the scientific team around him. That's brought them together. The English team, we're obsessed with sport and football. We have been for, for many years, as we know. But look at the connection that the team and the manager and the staff uh, have done for the country in the in the last few weeks. It's brought us back together. The viewing figures are extraordinary. 20, 25 million people watched the game. 80, 90% of the, viewing pe- of the viewing public that night watched the game. It's all we discussed that night and the next morning, and it's made us feel good about ourselves. Also, it's a very young, diverse team which represents modern England, and they're doing more good in terms of promoting that than any dare I say it, business or political group are doing because they're young, vibrant people. So there's far more to them than just football, thankfully. And it's bringing us together through times of division and uncertainty. And I wrote an article in March 2020 when lockdown first started and pandemics were first brought to our attention, or COVID was. And I said that sport matters more than ever. And 17 months later, sport matters more than ever, John, more than ever. I wholeheartedly agree with that, Michael. And where are we now? 18 months into the pandemic, and throughout that time, you've worked with any number of leaders in sport. And I'm curious to know if there's any leadership trends you've noticed, or any shift in how people are managing. You spoke before about the history of leadership, and there must have been some micro changes. I think there's been, a, there's been micro changes, but there's also been a macro change. And that's a word I don't use very often, John. Because I flew to Belfast safely, legally, correctly distancing, everything you like on Friday to speak to 80 coaches about this. And the presentation I ended up writing for them was that through it all, we've had to go back as coaches and as leaders and as managers and educators. We've had to go back to what I would call those glorious basics, because all the luxuries we've been used to in in life, particularly in sport and, and, and leadership, were stripped away. They were gone because we didn't have them. And if you've been involved in sport, training grounds and and training facilities were taken right back to simply just turning up, getting changed in the side of the pitch and doing your best. It was almost, and I will use this phrase correctly, old school. I call it right school. And it was best summed up by the Manchester City forward, Gabriel Jesus, who said that his manager, Guardiola, had changed through COVID. He said there were less meetings, less less videos, less information but the intensity had not dropped. But we all of those glorious luxuries we had in life, uh, and even the basics of eating together and changing together, they were taken away. And coaches had to rely on their very basic human connection skills to get through their players because we weren't allowed to do anything else. We couldn't even meet in a, as a group. It had to be done one-to-one. 
And I think it took it back in time into how the coaches of yesteryear had to manage and lead without living in a data-driven digital world. And it's been that's been the huge change, which is what we're actually quite good at in the first place. It just made us, made us do it all over again. Change in tack. I wanted to ask you about the session you moderated with Dean Smith. What are your thoughts on him as a leader? Someone you shared a changing room with for four years or so. He is almost beyond authentic. I've never seen Dean Smith fake a sentence, fake a meeting, fake a training session, fake a response. I've never seen Dean do anything without authenticity. And when he speaks at leaders, which is online events, when he talks to the world's, or to the sporting media with regards to football, and football's quite big and the Premier League's quite big, and Aston Villa are quite a big player in the Premier League. He never moves away from exactly who he is, which is this very pleasant, decent, ambitious young man from Great Bar in Birmingham. And when you meet with him, and he won't mind me saying this, and I did meet with him after the season ends, he's with his three best mates from infant school back in Great Bar. Because he's now got a degree of fame and a degree of success and a degree of income, which far exceeded his expectations when he set off years ago, he is still exactly the same person. He's not been affected by success by fame, by wealth, by glory, it hasn't changed him one single bit. And it's his, it's his authenticity, John, every single time that absolutely strikes me. And in what ways does he transmit that to his players and colleagues? It's trust. They trust him because he is genuine and he's true to his word and he says what he does and he leads by example and behaviours rather than fluffy slogans and weird behaviour. He's, he's always in control of his emotions, which means they're in control, hopefully, of their emotions because that rubs off on him, uh, on his team from him. And they trust him because they know deep down that he's got their best interests at heart, which he does. He wants to be successful. He wants to win. He wants to be his, he wants to bring trophies. He wants to bring everything back to Villa Park, but not at the expense of being who he is and at the expense of the trust of his players. And that's not particularly easy when you're in a position of of importance and influence. In Dean's time at Aston Villa, they've gone from championship mediocrities to promotion to the Premier League, which is one of the best leagues in the world, and eventual consolidation in that league, with high hopes for the season ahead. Do you feel that the leadership qualities he possesses are eminently scalable? Well, I've seen I've seen him do it at lower levels. I've seen and met many of his staff and players from yesteryear when he was at Sheffield Wednesday as a player, or Walsall, or Leighton Orient, or Brentford as a manager. And that same authenticity still comes through every single time. It just doesn't change. Because he's now gone from Orient to Walsall to Brentford to Aston Villa, he can't go too much higher unless he goes to an absolute superpower in Europe, which isn't ruled out, by the way. But he's terribly happy where he is. He does not change as a person. His leadership skills evolve. His management skills evolve. His knowledge evolves. But he does not change. And I think that's the most important thing I can stress. Finally, Michael, what are some of the questions, in your view, we should be asking leaders in the days, weeks and months ahead? Are you doing it to boost or protect your own personnel, your own ego, your own career? Or are you doing it for the benefit of the people you are leading, coaching uh, and or teaching? Because if you're doing it for your, for your own personal benefit, you're in the wrong job. Thank you very much, Michael. Now to wrap things up. I spoke to Paula Dunn, the head coach of Paralympics at British Athletics. Paula, herself a former sprinter, has been at the helm of one of sport's most successful programmes since 2012 and was the first female head coach to be appointed by UK Athletics. At the 2016 Rio Games, Great Britain won 15 gold, 
seven silver and 11 bronze medals to finish third in the medals table behind the US and China in the athletics category. Great Britain also surpassed their total from their 2012 home Paralympics in London that year. Anyway, Paula took time out of her preparations for the forthcoming games in Tokyo to discuss the skills of leadership, having difficult conversations and her ability to be comfortable in her own skin as a head coach. But I began by asking her about some of the things you need as a head coach in order to make the best decisions. Well, I think for me, these are obviously just my my golden rules. I think to be clear, clear communication, really good listener. I think I mentioned, you know, my, my phrase is, you know, two ears and one mouth. And so you've got to listen twice as much as you talk. You know, be open to new ideas, supportive. And, you know, I, I'm more of a team head coach. So I like to involve the team. I like everybody to feel valued and that everybody's got a voice and everybody respected with their viewpoints. So, yeah, so those are some of the characteristics I would probably say would be useful for, for a team leader or a head coach. And as a head coach, how do you help your team, your staff, to find their feet so that they feel comfortable being part of your team? So to me, it comes down to trust. You know, I think um, I'm also a person that believes actions speak louder than words. So it's just demonstrating good behaviour, um, you know, making sure that people feel comfortable, create a safe environment so that everybody feels like that they can input into every conversation. But I think it comes down to just creating a good environment so that everybody does feel valued. And so I, that's, the, that's the type of atmosphere I want to create is that people know that they can raise any points and I would be open to listening to them and I would um, consider everything they say um, appropriately. And people feel safe and nobody's going to be mocked or laughed at if they come up with a suggestion, which, you know, in hindsight might not be correct, but actually it's it's all about just making everybody feel valued and everybody can actually add something to the um, the team, which is essential. And is it always you as head coach who makes the final decision? Or are there occasions where the decision sits with someone else? How does that work in practice? Yeah, I think when it, when it comes down to it and if somebody has to make a decision, then it, it would be me. Um, but I, obviously what I kind of do is I collate all the information um, so that I'm got every point of view which is really difficult sometimes in the heat of a moment in a competition or championships where you know you have to make quick decisions so so to me yeah generally quick decisions or the final decision probably lies with me this is your second paralympic cycle but do you still find it tough to make difficult decisions and have those hard conversations with athletes even nine years into the job Oh my gosh, it's so difficult. I don't think anybody, I don't, I don't think anybody likes to disappoint somebody else. Um, but I try and just make sure I've got all the information. I, I am, I do show a lot of empathy. I mean, I think in fact that I was an ex-athlete myself, so I, I've been on the other side of those phone calls when they've both been positive and negative. And 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 I like to make sure athletes know that I've got all the information. So I always think if if a, if it's a shock. An athlete is surprised a with a selection or deselection. Then I haven't really done my job well because I should have been in contact with that person. You know, always having conversation, open conversation, understanding where they are if they've got any issues, speaking to them on a regular basis, so that so that that shock element shouldn't be there. So, like at the moment, we've got um, selection for our final selections in three weeks. You know, so next week I'm having one to ones with all the athletes. Some of those athletes' conversation going to be really easy. But some of them are going to be a bit more trickier. But for me, it's just being really honest where people sit. And I, th- and I think, pe- well, when I was an athlete, I always wanted people to be treated. I wanted all the information. I wanted to be, be honest. And if they said, right, it's a 50-50, 
chance then I, that was fine and you accept that so for me it's making sure that I'm really open with the athletes and their support team so they understand exactly where they sit um, and if it is a tough decision at least I've had those conversations prior and so it's not like you're expecting it but you're prepared for information or prepared for an answer. You've talked before about the importance of listening how do you ensure that you're listening effectively is that a skill you can practice? Oh my gosh, yeah, because I, I thought I'd listened, but I actually didn't. I think most people, when they say they're listening, they've already got a preconceived idea of the answer. So you're going into a meeting and you kind of know what you want to get out of the meeting. So you kind of steer the conversation to where you want it to go. So I, I did go on the elite program, so I thought I was a really good listener. No, but actually, you don't. You know, I wasn't very good. So I've had to work really hard. And that means just investing time and seeing what people are saying and also what they're not saying and what the body language is, not just accepting, you know, how are you feeling? They go fine. Not just accepting that. You go, well, are you really fine? Is there anything? And then people generally open up if they find that you're interested in what they're going to say. So, yeah, so to me, it's a really, it's a really important skill and a skill that you, you I don't think anybody's really good at. You just got to keep practicing it and practicing it. And what does it take for you to be comfortable in your own skin as a head coach? Oh my gosh, do you know what I would not, I would say I've only been comfortable. So I've been doing the job nine years. I would say if I'm being honest, I've probably been in the last four, I'm comfortable. I think like most people, I was a little bit like, oh my gosh, is somebody going to catch me out? A bit of an imposter syndrome, wasn't too sure what I was doing. So so now I'm, I've got my self-esteem is good. I'm confident. I've done one cycle. Well, I've done two cycles. I kind of know what I'm doing um, and I feel comfortable in the actions I'm going to take. But I think it just takes, well, it took me a while to just get comfortable in that position and making sure, and it's only because I wanted to do it so well, so you worked so hard. So I would say initially I was really poor at delegating because I, I felt actually I needed to be responsible for everything, which is an impossible situation. I don't think I valued the team enough in the beginning because I was so scared of things going wrong. I think my trust wasn't there, again, because I was so scared of things going wrong. So I think it took me about four or five years to get comfortable. And then you've got a really good team. So to me, if they've employed, why why am I not using them to their maximum ability? So um, definitely comfortable now, but I think it, it... but it took me a while to get comfortable in that position, definitely. And is it hard to tell people when you don't have the answers? See, well, I'm, I'm pretty honest, so it, didn't, it wasn't really that hard. <laughs> but initially, you, you, when you get there and then people are looking at you, you can't really say, actually, I, I don't know. And I think it, it definitely took me time. So in the beginning, I never said, I, like, I always say, well, I don't know the answer, but I'll go and find out. And and that's just generally the way I've, I've always been, if I don't know the answer. Because I, think, I think people can tell when you don't know when you kind of like, you know, just trying to blag them. So I think it's really obvious. So so I can tell people when to do it. So I'm thinking, I don't want to be that person. So, um, so yeah, I, I just read, I'm just very open now. Say, I, I don't know that answer, but I will make sure I'll go and find the answer for you. People generally accept that now. What are some of the elements that go into building trust with people? It must be working on their skills, but it also must be identifying and working with their motivations as well, right? Yeah, so, you know, like with athletes, we, we all presume an athlete wants to compete, and some do just to win medals. But there's lots of motivation. Some athletes want to do it because they want to make money or they want the fame or they want the glamour or they want to do something pretty. Actually, it doesn't really matter what my motivations are, I think. Actually, it's what they want. So whatever their motivations, even if it's different from mine, 
I have to support them because they need to reach their full potential. So it takes you a while because you you just presume everybody does it because you've got the same motivations as you, but actually that's that's not true. So I'm I'm actually quite competitive and quite driven. So that is my motivation. But some people are not don't have those characteristics, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that they've got a different driver. So for me, it's to understand what everybody's driver is so I, I can maximise them for the, the best, you know, for the, the overall success of the team. And um, so for me, it is important for what people, why people are in the room, what's, why, why they're there. I always say, what is your why? Why, why, why are you here in this room today? Generally, everybody will come back to whatever the, their issue is, back to the athlete. So to me, we know why we're there, but everybody's motivation is going to be slightly different. And I guess it's important that it's not just personal bests, medals and podiums at the end of it all. Absolutely, yeah. Because that's not enough. I mean, today is really interesting because today is the Olympic Games, their selection for the athletics. And there's been lots of people putting like loads of really, really meaningful statements out. Um, and I've been reading and I and I retweeted one because it was really true. It's like, don't let the performance define you as a person. And it's really difficult because everybody thinks they know the athlete and they do see a performance, but that's not the person, you know, that's just them doing a, a skill. And it's it's really important that we're able to separate them and, you know, medals and like, if you're not happy, a medal's not going to make you happy. You know, it's, you, know you, you get like a bit of satisfaction, but if your underlying is that you're not happy or there's other things going on, then I always say medals and success. It doesn't give you all the things you're looking for. So, so you have to, there's got to be more than just medals and everything else that goes with it. You've got to have a, I also, you need to know what your why is, why you're doing something. Because when, when things are hard and it will get hard, you need to know why you're there. A lot of the athletes on your team may be looking at their post-career. They might be at university or studying in college. Any kind of qualification they may be looking to do in order to transition upon their retirement. But how do you ensure those extracurricular activities complement their athletic programs? See, I, I think it's really important. Athletes, a lot of athletes don't ever have a plan B. So they don't understand that, you know, this is going to end sometime. So part of our role and part of, I think, high performance is to make sure we keep putting that on their agenda, make sure it's on their radar, that there is a plan, you know, if you could get an injury that can end your career tomorrow, which is re- quite scary, but it's, it is very true. So we, it is something that we are definitely, I don't think we've done it well in high performance, but it's something that we have been pushing. But I think it definitely has to take more of a higher priority because the balance between having a plan B and, a, and just balancing life, you know, doing something besides sport is good for you. And I always think if you, if, and, it, and it's just like in life, you've got lots of things, some things will go well, and but some things in the same time won't go well. So if your athletics or your sport isn't going well, you, you could have success in your studies or if you're doing a course. And it's it's really important for somebody's self-esteem that something's going positive in their life. But if it's all wrapped around sport and you've got an injury or you're, you're in a slump, then that, that actually is not good for that person because they've got no outlet. So to me, something I always push and obviously when I was competing it wasn't and nobody was very few athletes were full out full time because there was no lottery support so I always worked part-time 
um, and then coach and train. So to me, it was I always had a nice balance because in my athletics wasn't going well. You know, I had work, which would always give me some sort of satisfaction. So you just need to have balance in life. So, so to me, it's something that I think we do well as a program that we definitely do push. But it is hard work because athletes don't see it. They don't see the need to have a plan B or they think, well, I can do it in five years' time. It's like, well, no, let's just start now the process. So it, it is something, and I think it will take a higher priority going forward, definitely. And reflecting back on the Tokyo cycle, what's the most important lesson you've learned these past five years? I think the most important lesson is for me to use the team and not think it's all down to me. I think that's been good for me, putting my hand up and saying I need a bit of help. And not to see that as a weakness, but actually to see it as a strength. And also really focusing on my own well-being, which I never really did before. And I'd, probably a lot of people in leadership don't think about their well-being. But I realised that if I'm tired or if, if I'm not on form, that will impact not only the staff I'm working with, but that will trickle out and impact the athletes. And nobody wants that. So my well-being and making sure that I stay, you know, um, optimum so that I can go to a team, you know, from day one right to the end and be in the best position possible to support everybody. That's both staff and athlete. So, yeah, it's it's putting your hand up when you're tired or you're struggling and just saying, you know, I need a bit of a hand here and not seeing that as a weakness. And finally, over the course of the Tokyo cycle, what have you been most proud of? I think I've, I've been proud of the, the athletes and the team. I've always been proud of that. I think I'm proud about myself is is being more self aware and I'm, I understand myself more. I, I yeah, I think me I understand me and what makes me good and what I need to do to stay good. And I've got a great team. I'm so proud of them because we worked so hard for the last five years and we've really gelled. And I'm really confident now going into Tokyo. And I think you only know how good you are during hard times. And we've had the pandemic and we've all stayed tight. And um, despite being, you know, we're all allocated and scattered around the country, um, but we've all been able to stay contacted and stay focused on what our goal is. So I think that to me is, is something to be proud of as well. 